You see, don't you? That she's got to be killed? The words came floating down to me from an upstairs window and drifted away into the darkness towards the Dead Sea. It was my first night at the Solomon Hotel in Jerusalem. She's got to be killed. It's the only solution. Ah, decidedly, wherever I go, there is something to remind me of my métier. But it is time to shut the window. The night air can be particularly injurious. She's got to be killed. Hmm. Someone working out a murder story, perhaps. But one thing is certain. I should know that voice again. We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot in Agatha Christie's Appointment with Death. The following morning, I was sitting in a quiet corner of the hotel lounge. I had no desire to draw attention to myself. I was observing the celebrated psychologist, Dr. Theodore Gerard, and a young lady with black hair that rippled back from her head, and a beautifully shaped red mouth. We met briefly on the train from Cairo. You were very kind and helped me with my luggage. But I had no idea you were the Dr. Gerard. I read all your books, of course. Of course. Uh, you see, I'm by way of being a doctor myself. I've just got my MB. And are you staying long in Jerusalem? Only a few days. And then I'm hoping to go to Petra. The Rose Red City. Mm. Yes, I was thinking of going there, if it does not take too long. About a week, I believe. Two days to go, two days there, and two days back. Those people have just come in. They were on the train the other night. An American family named Boynton, I believe. Oh, not a very happy family by the looks of them. Oh, no. We would never want to do that, would we, Nadine? I take it that's the mother. What a horror. Like a great fat spider sitting in the middle of her web. And her poor family look as if they were all at her mercy. We might go to the Mosque of Omar, or would that be too much for Mother Lennox? The girl is uneasy, almost afraid. You've dropped your knitting, Mother. Let me get it. The one they call Lennox. He's got the look of a wounded dog. The elder brother, evidently. The youngest girl, with the golden red hair. She is smiling, smiling into space. Look at her hands, Miss King. She is tearing a silk handkerchief to shreds. What is going on behind that seraphic smile? I wouldn't like to guess. And the singularly intense young man? I spoke to him on the train coming here. You spoke to him? He flushed up to the roots of his hair. Is that so surprising? Uh, you mean he thought I was a shameless hussy? No, I don't think so. But he did seem strangely excited. As if he'd never spoken to a girl before. Yet he must be in his early twenties. Even so, he still seems very young. But you must forgive me, Dr. Gerard. There are letters I have to write. We shall meet again, I hope. Oh, yes. Perhaps you will come to Petra? And as she crossed the room, she came to the table where the Boynton family were sitting. She was about to speak to the young man, but 
At that moment, he caught his mother's eye and turned away. It was as if the old lady had pulled an invisible string. Geneva, you're tired. You better go to bed. I'm not tired, Mother. Yes, you are. I don't think you'll be able to do any sightseeing tomorrow. Oh, but I shall. I'm quite all right. No, you're not. You're going to be ill. I'm not. I am not. I'll come with you, Jenny. No, Nadine. Let her go up alone. I want Nadine to come. Then, of course, I will. The child prefers to go up by herself, don't you, Ginevra? Yes, I'd rather go alone. Thank you, Nadine. There was something that was frightening about Mrs. Poynton. An evil malignancy like a cobra. A woman who had exercised a lifetime of power and had never doubted her own force. Mrs. Boynton, how wonderful to see you. Not too tired by the journey, I hope. A little, Mr. Cope. My heart's never strong, as you know. Nadine takes good care of me, don't you, Nadine? I do my best. I'm sure you do. And uh, how are you finding Jerusalem, Lennox? I don't know, hard to tell. Perhaps you haven't been around much yet. We can't do very much because of Mother. A couple of hours sightseeing is about all I can manage. But I don't give in to my body. It's the mind that matters. Are you counting on staying here long, Mr. Cope? I've finished most of my sightseeing. Yeah, I'm planning to have a look at Petra. A uh, most remarkable place, I've been told. Oh, yes, I've been reading about it. It sounds wonderful. Oh, maybe I could persuade you and your brother to come with me. You too, perhaps, Lennox. Naturally, I know you couldn't manage it, Mrs. Boynton, and uh, I'm sure some of your family would want to remain with you. But if you were to uh, divide forces, so I to speak... don't think we'd care to do that, would we, children? Oh, no. We'll stay here with you. And what about you, Nadine? No, thank you, Mother. Not unless Lennox wants to go. So, Lennox, why don't you and Nadine go? She seems to want to. Oh, no. No, I think it's better if we all stay together. You see, Mr. Cope, we prefer to keep to ourselves. By the way, Raymond, who was that young woman who came by our table just now? She looked as though she wanted to speak to you. I don't know her name. She was on the train the other night. I don't think we'll have much to do with her. And now I think it's time we all went up. Help me out of my chair, will you, Nadine? Good night, Mr. Cope. Monsieur Poirot. Ah, oh, monsieur. I didn't notice you tucked away in the corner. Jefferson Cope, we met in Alexandria. Of course. May I join you? Mm-hmm. I uh, read in the newspaper that you were here. Ah, it is most distressing. One tries to preserve the incognito, but... <sighs> Tell me, who are the American family with whom you were talking? The Boyntons. And are they all the children of that rather grotesque-looking lady? Oh, no. Uh, she's the second Mrs. Boynton. Uh, Lennox, Raymond, and Carol are the children of the first marriage, and uh, Nadine is Lennox's wife. And the strangely fragile-looking creature with the beautiful red hair? She is Mrs. Boynton's daughter, Ginevra. And Mr. Boynton, he is so dead, I take it? Oh, yes. He died quite some time ago, and uh, Mrs. Boynton has devoted herself entirely to the family. And do they all live at home with her? Yes. And do neither of the sons work? Well, no. Uh, Mr. Boynton was a very rich man. He, he left all his money to Mrs. Boynton for her lifetime, uh, after which it goes to the children. 
So, they are dependent on her financially? That is so. And she never encouraged them to go out and find work for themselves? Uh, on the contrary. She virtually pays them to remain with her. <sighs> it is not good for a man to be tied to the strings of the mother's apron, particularly the elder son. Yes. Yeah, and it makes it doubly difficult for his wife. She's a fine young woman, Monsieur Parot. Nadine is throwing her life away. Huh? You think she should leave him? Well, if Lennox can't appreciate her for what she is... Then she should begin a new life with another man? Yourself, perhaps? I'm not ashamed of my feelings for Nadine. All I want is her happiness. I I'm staying around in case she needs me. And does Madame Boynton approve of your friendship with her daughter-in-law? She seems to. She treats me like one of the family. Hmm. C'est curious, sir. She intrigues me greatly, this old lady. Perhaps she frightens me a little also. Frightens you? Hmm. For what might happen, Mr. Coop? For what might happen? Excuse me. Excuse me, I must talk to you. What is it? I've only got a minute. I'm Carol Boynton. It's about my brother. You must have thought him very rude, turning away from you like that last night, but he couldn't help it. Why couldn't he help it? He was afraid. Afraid of what? You see, my mother's not very well. She doesn't like us having anything to do with people outside. But I know that Ray would like to be friends with you. I mustn't stay. They may miss me. Why on earth shouldn't you stay? I can't. My mother... Look... I know it's awfully difficult sometimes for parents to realize that their children have grown up. But you mustn't give in. You're a free person. You don't understand. None of us have ever been free. We never will be. <laughs> but that's nonsense. I must try to make you understand. Before she married, my mother... I call her that, but she's really my stepmother. She was a prison wardress. My father was the governor and he married her. Well, she's gone on being a wardress. Our wardress. And our family is her prison. Carol, are you coming? I must go. Why don't we meet again and talk? I can't do that. Yes, you can. Come to my room before you go to bed. Room 319. Have you got that? I'll, I'll try. So, you've been making another attempt on the Boynton Castle, Miss King. Any better success this time? It isn't a castle, it's a prison. Mrs. Boynton used to be a prison wardress, apparently. How very appropriate. I can't understand why they don't break out. They can't. The old woman has worked on them since they were children. Look at the elder boy, Lennox. He's been in prison so long that even if the doors were thrown open, he would not even notice. Someone ought to get rid of that old woman. Arsenic in her early morning tea would be my prescription. <laughs> I just hope that poor, wretched Carol has got the guts to come and talk to me. I was afraid you might have gone to bed. I'm sorry it's so late. Please, come in. I've made some tea. Would you like a cup? It's real lapsang souchong. Lovely, thank you. This is rather fun, don't you think? A bit like Midnight Feast in the Dorm. Really? Thanks. I suppose you didn't go to school? No. We never left home. We had a governess. Quite a few, in fact. They rarely stayed long. Did you never get away at all? No. 
This is the first time we've ever been anywhere. But what was there to stop you? Mother would never allow it. How old are you, Carol? 23. Then you're free to do as you please. Oh, no. I just couldn't. Is it because you really don't want to leave? You're too fond of your stepmother? I hate her. Ray and I often wish that she was dead. And your elder brother? What does he think? I don't know what Lennox thinks anymore. He hardly ever speaks. Nadine's very worried about him. Have they been married long? Four years. And have they always lived at home? Yes. Is your sister-in-law happy with that? Perhaps I should tell you how it all came about. Five years or so ago, Lennox tried to assert his independence. One evening, he went down to the neighboring town. There was a, a dance of some sort going on. And, of course, Mother found out, and she was terribly angry. So, she asked Nadine to come and stay with us. She was a distant cousin of my father's. She was training to be a nurse, but she was broke. Nadine was with us about a month. I can't tell you how exciting it was to have someone to stay. And she and Lennox fell in love? Yes. I guess that was Mother's whole idea. She said they'd better get married quickly and live with us. Did Nadine agree to go along with that? At first, I don't think she minded very much. But later, when she wanted to go away with Lennox... Your mother put her foot down. Oh, she wouldn't hear of it. And Lennox didn't do anything? Nothing. I don't think Mother likes Nadine any longer. Nadine won't let herself be beaten down by her. And lately she's been trying to do something about Ginny. Ginny? Ginevra, Mother's daughter. She's always been rather delicate. And lately she's become very strange. She frightens me sometimes. But I must go. I've been here too long already. You will come again, won't you? And bring your brother, if you like. Oh, may I really? Shall we say tomorrow night at the same time? Oh, yes. But I must get back to my room before anyone finds that I'm gone. Carol? <gasps> I've been sitting here waiting for you. Where have you been? To see Miss King. The girl who spoke to Raymond on the train? Yes, Mother. Have you made any plans to see her again? Yes. You are not to go, you understand? Yes, Mother. You promise? Yes. You are to have nothing more to do with her. Repeat it. I will have nothing more to do with her. Good. Now go to bed. Mrs. Boynton and her unhappy family had begun to hold a strange fascination for me. Now, both Raymond and Carol walked past Miss King, pretending that she did not exist. But, like the good Mr. Cope, it was for Nadine Boynton that I was most concerned. She was like a wild animal, pacing her cage waiting for the opportunity to escape. Look at the sunshine out there, Lennox. We might be enjoying it instead of staring at it through a window. You want to go out? I want to go out there with you. Just the two of us together. Oh, Nadine, must we go into all this again? Yes, we must. We're just letting our life slip away from us. But what do you propose to do with it? What could we live on? Tell me that. I, I, I could get work in a surgery, something like that. You never even completed your training. We don't want to live like paupers. Mother gives us a... Everything. 
accept our freedom. I want a life of my own with you. I don't want to go on stifling in the shadow of a vicious old woman whose only pleasure is making other people miserable. She can't live forever, Nadine. And when she dies... When she dies, it may be too late. Too late? Too late for happiness. Lennox, I love you. Just think, we could have children. But Mother wants us to have children. I will not bring children into the shadow of your mother's world. The shadow you've all been brought up in. We've been through all this thousands of times. And this is the last time, Lennox. If you won't come with me, I shall go by myself. But Mother would never hear of it. She couldn't stop me. Nadine, for God's sake, don't leave me. Then come with me. You can, if only you will. I can't. I just can't. I I don't have the courage. Two days later, Dr. Gerard and Miss King were about to set out for Petra. I must confess that I did not envy them. It may be one of the wonders of the world, but, oh, consider the journey... First, boxed in a car for mile after mile in the heat of the sun, and then, oh, ma foi, on a horseback along slippery and dangerous paths. It would not be good for the vertigo, and nothing in my wardrobe would be suitable for such a journey. And what would it have done to my moustaches? I presume that you must be Miss King. I am Lady Westholm. I gather you're coming on the trip to Petra. Yes, that's right. And Only you I must be the celebrated Dr. Gerard. <laughs> your name is very familiar to me. I shall be most interested to hear your views on the treatment of the lunatic poor. It's one of my great concerns. Delighted to meet you, Lady Westholm. Uh, the agency is trying to foist on us a car that is totally unsuitable for the journey. I've ordered them to bring round their largest saloon. I'll just have a word with the porter, Mother. It looks as if the Boyntons are getting ready to move on. I think I shall have a word before I go. If you will excuse me, Lady Westholm. Good morning, Mrs. Boynton. What do you want with me? Just to wish you bon voyage, wherever it is you're going. Don't you think you've really behaved very stupidly, trying to stop your son and your daughter from making friends with me? It's so silly and childish. You would like to make yourself out to be a kind of ogre, but really, you're just pathetic and rather ludicrous. Well, say something. I don't care what it is. Just say it. I never forget. Remember that. I've never forgotten anything. Not an action, not a name, not a face. You poor, pathetic old thing. Goodbye. Exactly who is this Lady Westholm? Everyone seems terrified of her. Lady Westholm? You must have heard of her, surely. You forget I've been out in the Middle East for the last four years. I thought her fame would have spread even here. She's a member of Parliament. The cartoonists always have a field day with her. She has very strong views on family values and slum clearance and farming. <laughs> on practically everything, in fact. And is there a Lord Westholm? Oh, yes. But he spends all his time on his estate, hunting and shooting and keeping well out of it. 
They met on a ship coming back from the States. She was a Mrs. Vansittart then, apparently. Some journalists said their encounter demonstrated the perils of sea voyages. <laughs> I bet here she comes. She's got some wispy little lady in tow. The car should be here at any moment. I gave them a good ticking off. Men always seem to think that they can impose on women. Uh, oh, by the way, this is Miss Pierce. She's the fourth in our party. Dr. Gerard, Miss King. Yeah, how do you how do? do? You do? So pleased to meet you. Actually, it's Dr. King. Ah, oh, professional woman. Very good. If anything is to be accomplished, mark my words, it is women who will do it. But here comes our car. Excellent. I'll just go and tell them how the luggage should be loaded. I watched the very large and comfortable car drive away on the first stage of the journey to Petra, and I felt unaccountably afraid. A premonition of some danger that threatened in that fantastic city. And then I heard, clearly for the first time, the voice of Raymond Boynton as he came down the corridor. Carol, get Ginny, will you? Okay. Tell her we're going to leave in 15 minutes. It was the voice I had heard from my window on the first night in Jerusalem. And I had no doubt to whom he was referring when he had said, She's got to be killed. There's no direct road to Petra, of course. We go by way of Jericho to Amman. I've instructed the driver to get there early this afternoon so that we can take a look at the Roman theatre. Oh, I'd love to see that. It's cut right into the side of the hill and could seat 6,000. That's Roman efficiency for you. <laughs> efficiency is my watchword. I rather thought it might be. There's a reasonably decent place in Amman where we can stay overnight, but we'll have to be up with the lark tomorrow morning. It's a long drive down to Amman. From there, we turn off for Wadi Musa, where we have to leave the car. Why do we have to do that? Because the only way into Petra is through a vast cleft in the rock, the Sikh. At some points, it's only a few metres wide. You mean we have to walk? No, of course not. We go on horseback. There are always horses at Wadi Musa. But I have nothing suitable to wear. I, I've only brought light cotton dresses. Well, you'll just have to manage. I've brought riding breeches, much the most suitable thing. And you'll need sensible shoes, too. Perhaps I should be able to get something at the hotel. Hotel? There's no hotel at Petra. But where are we going to sleep? Under canvas. Or in one of the caves in the rock. Oh. Petra is like no other place on Earth. into the pit of hell through a labyrinth of red cliffs. It's fantastic. Unbelievable. A great amphitheater of rock. A dead city. And clusters of tents against the face of the cliff. And above them are the caves hollowed out of the rock. central cave there's some kind of idol a monstrous swollen creature brooding over the place like 
spirit of evil. But it isn't an idol. It's a living being sitting there. Mrs. Boynton. Looking as if she had always been part of the place. The arch priestess of some cult of human sacrifice. Apparently, they all arrived here yesterday. They were staying at the Solomon, weren't they? Yes. They're the Boynton family, I believe. I thought I recognised the old woman. Didn't I see you talking to her, Miss King? Yes, yes, I did have a word with her. But she can hardly get about. How did she come down through the sea? It seems she was carried in a chair by the bearers. <laughs> oh, that would have made them sweat a bit. She must be a fair weight. Yes, they had a hard time of it, according to the Dragoman. And she complained like hell the entire time. They're not at all interesting. Very provincial. What on earth possessed them to come to Petra? Miss King? Miss King, it really is you. I didn't know you were coming to Petra. If you'd managed to pluck up the courage to speak to me, I'd have told you, Mr. Boynton. Raymond. My, my name is Raymond. And how do you come to be in Petra? I understood your mother was too ill to even consider the journey. She suddenly made up her mind to come here, almost immediately after you left. And she refused to let anything stand in her way. She wouldn't even break the journey at Amman, but insisted on driving through the night. Mm, could have possessed her, I wonder. There's no point in even trying to understand her. It's so wonderful being able to talk to you like this. <laughs> it's as though we were protected by the darkness. I've thought about you so much since we spoke to one another on the train. You see... I think I'm in love with you. But you hardly know me. I love you. Oh, I, I know I've behaved very badly, refusing to speak to you or even to look at you. When she tells me to do things, it's as though I no longer have a will of my own. You must think I'm pretty despicable. No, I don't think that. I ought to be able to stand up for myself. I know that. I'm sure you will now. All that is needed is a little courage. Courage? Yes, you're right. I hope I shall be able to find it. Ugh, that was perfectly disgusting. Simply swimming, in fact. Really, these people have not the least conception of a proper diet. So, does anyone have any plans for this afternoon? I think I shall have a long rest. That climb this morning was really too much for me. I've never had a head for heights, I'm afraid. I shall follow your example. Half an hour with a book, and then I shall lie down and take an hour's rest, at least. After that, perhaps a short stroll. And what about you, Miss King? I'm waiting to see what the Boyntons are going to do. After practically killing themselves to get here, they've done next to nothing all morning. I'm going back to the cave. You can all go for a walk this afternoon without me. But, Mother... I, I shan't want any of you. I like sitting alone with my book. Ginny had better not go, though. She can lie down and have a sleep. But I'm not at all tired. I want to go with the others. Silly child, you've got a headache. You must take care of yourself. Go to your tent at once. Mother, are you really sure you... Don't wanna... fuss me, Lennox. I want to be on my own for a change. Can't you understand that? Why is 
she letting them all go free this afternoon? For once, the good mamma is allowing the children to enjoy themselves without her. A new devilment on her part, perhaps. Mm, that's just what I was thinking. What suspicious minds we have. Come, let us join them. They look like a bunch of school children let out for a half holiday. Mr Cope hardly qualifies as a school child. Ah, but he is there for a different purpose. He is determined not to let Nadine Boynton out of his sight. Where exactly are we making for, Mr Cope? For Almabba, the high place. Oh, it certainly deserves its name. It's quite a climb. There were donkeys for hire down below. Pretty pathetic-looking brutes. They didn't look as if they could ever make it. Uh, uh, forgive me. I fear I must go back. What's the matter? Is the climb too steep for you? Oh, no. It, it's fever. I felt it coming on ever since lunch. Is it malaria? A legacy from the time I spent in the Congo. I'll go back to the camp and take some quinine. Shall I come with you? Oh, no, no, no. It's... I had my case of drugs in the tent. I shall be quite all right. It's just a confounded nuisance, that's all. You go on, all of you. Al-Madba. It means the altar. The altar of the high place of sacrifice. Sacrifice? Yes. The Nabataeans used to make offerings here to their gods. You can see the runnels where the blood flowed down. We are talking about animal sacrifice, I take it? Oh, yes. I don't think the Nabataeans offered up humans. They were quite sophisticated. But old customs sometimes die hard. And people all over the world have practiced human sacrifice. Oh, I think it's horrible. One can have too much regard for life. Death isn't really as important as we make out. Strange words coming from a doctor. Sometimes it may be expedient for one person to die to save others. It may even mean a fuller life. Miss King, may I talk to you for a moment? You don't really have to ask. And it's Sarah, not Miss King. Has everyone got to? Oh, Nadine and Cope seem to be having a very serious talk with one another. Lennox is just sitting by himself, gazing into space, and I have no idea where Carol's got to. I just wanted a word with you before I go. Go? Go where? In a few minutes, I'm going back down to the camp. There's something I have to do. Once that's done, once I've proved to myself that I'm not a coward, then... Then I shan't be ashamed to come and ask you to help me. I shall need help, you know. I shall probably need to borrow money from you. No difficulty there. I'll be glad to help. But first, I've got to do this alone. Do what? To prove my courage, Sarah. It's now or never. What are you doing, Lennox? Sitting here all by yourself. Just looking at the view over the city? It's strange. This place is supposed to be one of the most fantastic places on Earth, thousands of years old, an ancient city even before the Romans came here. And you know, Nadine, I can feel nothing. Nothing at all. It's as if I'd suddenly been let out of prison for a few hours, and I don't know what to do with myself. What's the matter? Why are you looking at me like that? Lennox... There's something I have to tell you.
Miss King. We were wondering where you'd got to. They were serving dinner in a minute. I've been to take a look at Dr. Gerard. He has a touch of fever. Oh, not too serious, I hope. No, I think he'll be all right. He was sleeping quite soundly. We went for such an interesting little walk after we'd finished our siesta. Lady Westholm suggested we take a look at the case. Miss King, Miss King, forgive me for disturbing you, but they say you are a doctor. What's the matter? I do not wish to disturb the family, but it is the old lady. Abdul went to tell her to come to dinner. He says she is ill. She does not move. I'll come straight away. Where is she? At the entrance to her cave. She's sitting exactly as she was when we came into Petra last night. She looks more like an ancient idol than ever. She's not breathing, and there's no pulse. What is the matter with her? She's dead. I was in Amman when I heard the news. I had come there at the invitation of the British commissioner, Colonel Carbury, who was curious to meet the celebrated detective about whom he had heard so much. Tell me, Monsieur Poirot, do you ever find that your job is a funny way of following you around? Following me around? Do you ever come to a place looking forward to a holiday from crime and discover that corpses keep cropping up? Mm, it has certainly happened, and more than once. You see, I've got a body here now that I'm not very happy about. Well, what kind of body? Old American woman. Went to Petra with her family. Trying journey, unusually hot for the time of the year. She suffered from heart trouble. Suddenly popped off. While she was in Petra? Yes. They brought her body here today. All quite natural, of course. Likeliest thing in the world to happen, only... Only what? I've got a nasty idea that her family did her in. Ah, and what makes you think that? Unpleasant old woman, it seems. General feeling all round that her popping off was a good thing. And very difficult to prove anything so long as the family all stick together and, if necessary, lie like hell. Easiest thing to do would be to let it go, but I don't like a mess. Was there no doctor down there? Matter of fact, there were two, but one of them went down with malaria. The other's a girl, only just qualified. Still, she knew her job, I suppose. She didn't find anything odd about the death. Old woman had a dicky heart and had been taking medicine for some time. Oh, then, my friend, what is worrying you? The other doctor... A chap called Gerard. Ah, yes. Yeah, he was staying at my hotel in Jerusalem. A bit of a loony specialist, I gather. Passion for a charwoman at the age of four makes you think you're the Archbishop of Canterbury when you're 38. However, that's got nothing to do with his story. Would you care to hear it? Tell me, Colonel, is the name of this dead woman by any chance Mrs. Boynton? How the blazes did you know that? Yes, it is. Then I would most certainly like to hear what he has to say. I knew I was in for a bout of malaria. I fairly staggered into my tent. An intravenous injection of quinine is my usual treatment, but I couldn't find my case of drugs. Someone had moved it from where I had left it. And when I eventually found it, my hypodermic syringe was missing. Ah. In the end, I gave up looking for it and took a large dose of quinine by mouth. After that, I collapsed on my bed and went out like a light. And it was while you were sleeping that Mrs. Boynton was found dead? 
Yes, sometime after sunset. Mm. Because of the way she was sitting and the support the chair gave to her body, no one noticed anything was wrong until a servant went to tell her it was time for dinner. The cave where she had installed herself was some distance away from the big marquee. And it was the young woman doctor who examined the body? Miss King, yes. She didn't disturb me knowing that I had a fever. There was, in any case, nothing that could have been done. Mrs. Boynton had been dead for some time. For how long, exactly? I do not think Miss King gave much attention to that point. She presumably did not think it was of any importance. Why should she, after all? But we can surely establish when Mrs. Boynton was last known definitely to be alive. I've got it all down here. Uh, Mrs. Boynton was spoken to by Lady Westholm and Miss Pierce shortly after 4pm. Lennox Boynton spoke to his mother at about 4.30. Mrs. Lennox Boynton had a long conversation with her about five minutes later. Carol Boynton had a word with her mother but cannot remember exactly when. It would seem to have been around ten minutes past five. Jefferson Cope? Ah, yes, yes, I know Mr. Cope. He is a close friend of the family, I think. He noticed Mrs. Boynton outside her cave at around uh, 20 to 6 when he was returning to the camp. And did he go up to speak to her? No. The last person to have seen her alive was her son, Raymond Boynton. Raymond Boynton. Hmm. That is most interesting. And when was this? He says he spoke to her at about 10 minutes to 6. But this is where we get into deep waters. As I mentioned just now, Sarah King saw no reason to determine the exact time of death. But when I happened to mention that Mrs Boynton was last seen alive by her son Raymond at a little before six, Miss King said that was impossible. At that time, Mrs Boynton must already have been dead. And what does Raymond Boynton say to that? He insists that his mother was alive. He went up to her and said, um, I'm... Back from my walk. I hope you've had a nice afternoon. And she just grunted, quite all right. Hmm. How very curious. And when did you see the body, Dr. Gerard? The following morning, at about 9am. I had recovered by then. And do you have any opinion of when death might have occurred? It is difficult to be exact after that length of time. Were I giving evidence on oath, I could only say that she had been dead certainly 12 hours and not longer than 18. Hmm. I fear that does not help at all. And your hypodermic syringe, Doctor, did you find it when you awoke? Yes, I did. It was behind a case of bottles on my dressing table. Is there a possibility you could have overlooked it? You were suffering from fever after all. I was shaking from head to foot. But I can only say I am positive that the syringe was not there. You see, Poirot, it's a matter of some importance. There is a mark on the dead woman's wrist. Which could have been caused by the insertion of a syringe. Mrs Boynton's daughter says it was the prick of a pin. Which daughter? Carol. And there is one thing more. When I examined my little case of drugs, I noticed that the stock of digitoxin was much diminished. Now, digitoxin is a heart poison, is it not? Yes. And Mrs. Boynton was suffering from heart trouble. Yes, and she was actually taking a medicine containing digitoxin. Ah, that is clever, very clever, to employ a poison which the victim is already taking. Oh, yes, there are brains there. And yet one thing puzzles me. What is that, Poirot? The theft of the hypodermic syringe. What do you think? 
Was it murder? Now, one moment. There is one more piece of evidence to consider. What evidence? The evidence of Hercule Poirot. In the Solomon Hotel one night, I had a voice through the open window, and what does it say, this voice? It says, You see, don't you, that she's got to be killed. Good Lord! I say... And I knew that if I heard it again, I would recognize that voice, and I did hear it in an hotel corridor. It was the voice of Raymond Boynton. Good Lord! The question is... What are we going to do about it? You desire to know who killed Mrs. Boynton, that is, if she did not die a natural death, and exactly how and when she was killed? I should like to know that, yes. I see no reason why you should not know it. And how do you propose to set about it? By methodical sifting of the evidence and the employment of the little grey cells. And you think you can produce a rabbit out of the hat? I should be exceedingly surprised if I could not. Where do you propose to begin, Monsieur Poirot? The first thing to determine is whether this is a composite murder, planned and carried out by all the Boynton family, or whether it is the work of one of them only. And your top suspect is Raymond Boynton. Tell me, Doctor, do you think he is of the temperament that could commit murder? Yes, I think it is possible but only under conditions of intense emotional strain. And those conditions were present? Undoubtedly. And there is an additional complication. What's that? I think there is a certain torn dress between him and Sarah King. Ah, and that might give him an additional stimulus. I would say, sir. Then perhaps before we go any further, we should have a word with Miss King. Yes, but if you will permit, gentlemen... I should like to talk to her alone. Very well, Monsieur Poirot. You know best how to go about this, and we're in your hands. I should point out, however, that I can't detain these people indefinitely. All I ask is that you keep them in a month for 24 hours. You shall have the truth by tomorrow night. You sound very sure of yourself. Mm -hmm. I know my own abilities... Well, it's up to you. And if you succeed, my friend, you are indeed a marvel. Are you sure, Monsieur Poirot, that this is not a case of Roman holiday? With the private lives of a family disturbed so that Hercule Poirot can play a little game of detectives to amuse himself? I didn't mean to be offensive, but isn't it a little like that? You are on the side of the family, then. They've suffered a great deal. They oughtn't to have to stand any more. And la maman, she was tyrannous, désagréable, and decidedly better dead than alive. When you put it like that, no, one shouldn't take it into consideration. But all the same one does. That is, you do, mademoiselle. But I do not. The victim may be one of God's saints or a monster of infamy. It moves me not. A life has been taken. But you can't be sure of that. Just because Dr. Gerard couldn't find his syringe when he was nearly delirious with fever. But there is other evidence. What evidence? A supply of digitoxin is missing from Dr. Gerard's medicine case. There is the mark of a hypodermic syringe on the dead woman's wrist. And something more still. Some words I overheard in Jerusalem on a clear, still night spoken by Raymond Boynton. You do see, don't you? that she's got to die. You heard that? Yes. 
It would be you who heard it. Yes, it would be me. So now you know why I think there should be an investigation. Yes, I do. And you will help me? Certainly. Hmm. Then, would you be good enough to tell me what you can remember of the day of the murder? I didn't see anything of the Boyntons at all until lunchtime. Mrs. Boynton seemed in an unusually good temper. She actually told her family they could go off for a walk by themselves. And this was unusual? Mm -hmm. Yes. She generally wouldn't let them out of her sight. You did not have any conversations with Mrs. Boynton herself? Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. I think I made rather a fool of myself. How is that? It was the morning we left for Petra. I went up to her in the hotel lobby. I told her I thought she was pathetic and ludicrous and that she could have a lot more fun if she was friendly and kind. Oh, la, la. And what did she say to that? It was rather frightening. She didn't even look at me, but just stared into space. I never forget. Remember that. I've never forgotten anything. Not an action, not a name, not a face. Hmm. That is most interesting. Tell me, mademoiselle, were there any witnesses to this extraordinary conversation? Dr. Gerard was nearby, and Lady Westholm, and I think Mr. Cope. But I don't know if any of them heard. Oh, thank you, mademoiselle. I will now begin my investigation. If I might make a suggestion? Certainly. Why not postpone all this till after the autopsy? Aren't you rather putting the cart before the horse? This is the method of Hercule Poirot. And besides, I wish to hear the views of Lady Westholm. Oh, but of course, Monsieur Poirot, I shall be delighted to help you. It is, after all, a public duty. I have a perfect recollection of that afternoon, and I'm sure that Miss Pierce will confirm what I say. It was all so unexpected. Death, just like that, in the twinkling of an eye. After lunch, I decided to take a brief siesta. Not that I was really tired, I seldom am. I do not really know what fatigue is. I was terribly tired after the climb up to the monastery. I'm afraid I'm not nearly as strong as Lady Westholm. So, after lunch, you two ladies went to your tents. Now, I understand that Mrs. Boynton was then sitting at the mouth of her cave, about uh, 200 yards from you. Mm, something like that, yes. Now, I have here a map, drawn up with the help of the dragoman. Oh, the fellow's a perfect fool. I've had occasion to correct him several times. The cave next to Mrs. Boynton's was occupied by Lennox Boynton and his wife. Raymond and Carol and Ginevra Boynton had tents a little below it, and Dr. Gerard and Miss King had tents next to them. Then there is a little stream, and the big marquee with your tent and that of Miss Pierce on either side of it. Yes, that is broadly correct. Uh, do you think you could open the window, Monsieur Poirot? It is positively stifling in here. Of course, Lady Weston. <sighs> Thank you. I cannot abide a room where all the windows are shut. And now, if you would be so kind as to continue. At about a quarter to four, I walked along to Miss Pierce's tent to see if she felt like a stroll. We agreed to start in about half an hour when the sun would be less hot. I went back to my tent and read for about 20 minutes and then we set out. 
And Lady Westholm most thoughtfully called up to Mrs. Boynton to see if there was anything she wanted before we left. And do you know, Mr. Poirot, the only answer she gave was a grunt. She looked at us as if we were dirt. Had her manner been especially peculiar on that particular day? She had been very abusive to one of the servants. Oh, which servant was this? One of the Bedouin servants at the camp. He went up to her... I think she must have sent him to get something, and he brought the wrong thing. She was very angry about it. The poor man slunk away as fast as he could. What did he look like? I couldn't really say. He was too far away, and all the Arabs look alike to me. I could see him quite well. He was of more than average height and wore the usual headdress. He had on a pair of very torn and patched breeches, and his puttees were wound all anyhow. You could uh, point him out, perhaps? Probably not. His face was turned away from us. Oh, well, we can easily make inquiries as to what so irritated Mrs. Boynton. It may have been because he went into her youngest daughter's tent, looking for whatever it was she'd told him to get. And when did all this happen? Well, we were resting in our tents. Good. Well, that is almost interesting. Now, I would like you both to describe to me... What took place when you returned to the camp after your walk? Did you notice any of the Boyntons? Yes. We saw Mr. Lennox Boynton and his wife. He looked as though he had a touch of the sun. He was walking as though he were slightly dizzy. He went straight up to his mother, but he didn't stay with her for very long. And his wife? She brought a chair out of her cave and sat talking to her mother-in-law for about ten minutes. And then she joined her husband in the marquee. And the younger members of the family? Oh, we didn't see them at all until they came into the marquee shortly before dinner. And then the servant came and told us that Mrs. Boynton had been taken ill. Miss King was most insensitive in the way she just blurted out the news to the family. It could have been done with more tact, I thought. And how did they take it? It is difficult to say. They were all strangely quiet about it. Mr. Lennox Boynton looked simply stunned. No, no, I wouldn't say that. After all, we knew that my mother's heart was not strong. I understand that when you returned from your walk that afternoon, you went up and spoke to her. Yes. Yes, yes, I did. She did not complain of feeling ill? No, she seemed perfectly all right. Hmm. May I ask what passed between you? I asked my mother if she wanted anything, tea or coffee. She said no. Then I went to the marquee. I sat there reading some old numbers of the Saturday Evening Post. I... I think I must have dozed off. And your wife joined you there? Yes, she came in not long after. And did you see your mother alive again? No. Now, when you were talking to her, she did not seem in any way upset or agitated? No, she was exactly as usual. She did not refer to any trouble or annoyance with one of the servants? No, nothing at all. And is that all you can tell me? I'm afraid so, yes. Hmm. Thank you, Mr. Bonton. There's nothing else? Nothing. Well, perhaps you would be so good as to ask your wife to come here. I had no love for my mother-in-law, Monsieur Poirot, and it would be idle to pretend that I regret her death. Thank you, madame, for speaking so frankly. But although I cannot pretend sorrow, I can admit to remorse. To all intents and purposes, I killed her. Perhaps you would care to elucidate, madame. I will be frank with you, Monsieur Poirot. My married life has not been particularly happy. My husband is not entirely to blame for that. His mother's influence over him has been largely responsible. 
But I have been feeling for some time that my life was becoming intolerable. Perhaps it would be best if we were to close the window. Uh, yeah, please uh, go on, madame. On the afternoon of my mother-in-law's death, I came to a decision. A very good friend has suggested more than once that I should throw in my lot with him. I accepted his proposal. You decided to leave your husband? Yes. There was no point in putting it off. When I returned to the camp, my mother-in-law was sitting in her usual place. I decided to break the news to her there and then. She was surprised? And very angry. She worked herself up into a terrible state about it. I refused to discuss the matter any further and walked away. I never saw her alive again. And you think her death was caused by the shock? Almost certainly. And did you tell your husband of your decision? Yes. Yes, I told him then. He didn't say very much. We had both known for some time that something like this might happen. You will pardon me, but the other man was, of course, Jefferson Cope. Yes. Hmm. Do you own a hypodermic syringe, madame? Yes. That is, no. Hmm? I have an old hypodermic, amongst other things, in a travelling medicine chest. But it is in our big luggage, which we left in Jerusalem. I see. Why did you ask me that, Monsieur Poirot? Mrs. Boynton was, I understand, taking a medicine containing digitalis. Yes. That was for her heart trouble. Hmm? Yes. Digitalis is, to some extent, a cumulative drug? I believe it is. I don't know much about it. If Mrs. Boynton had taken an overdose of digitalis... She did not. She was always most careful. So was I, if I was measuring the dose for her. Ah, well, the analysis of the bottle will soon tell us. Unfortunately, the bottle was broken. Indeed. Who broke it? I'm not sure. One of the servants, I think. A table got knocked over when they were carrying my stepmother's body into the cave. Oh, that is very interesting. If you are suggesting that she died of an overdose, I think it is most improbable. Even when I tell you that Dr. Gerard has missed an appreciable quantity of digitoxin from his medicine chest... Monsieur Poirot, I did not kill my mother-in-law. Why must you mix yourself up in all this? There has been much suffering. Now at last there is the possibility of happiness. Must you destroy it? Let us be very clear, madame, what you are asking me to do. I have heard that once in that affair of the Orient Express, when you knew that everyone present had had a hand in a murder that was fully justified, you accepted an official verdict of what had happened. Mm, I wonder who told you that. Is it true? That case was different. No, it was not. The man who was killed was evil, as my mother-in-law was. The moral character of the victim has nothing to do with it. A human being who has exercised the right of private judgment and taken the life of another human being is not safe to exist in the community. I will not condone murder. That is my final word. Then go on. Bring ruin and misery into the lives of innocent people. I have nothing more to say. I think, madame, you have a lot more to say. No, Monsieur Poirot. I know nothing. Nothing. So, Poirot, any progress? Have we got a case yet? Not yet. At least I know that Monsieur and Madame are lying, 
and lies often tell me more than the truth. I've been thinking. Those words of young Boynton's that you overheard, she's got to be killed. They must have been spoken to someone. A good point. Undoubtedly, Raymond Boynton was talking to one of the family. But which of them? I don't understand you. What do you mean? What did I feel? When you heard that your stepmother was dead, what did you feel? It was a great shock. Was it such a great shock, Mademoiselle Caron? Remembering a certain conversation you and your brother Raymond had one night in Jerusalem? How do you know about that? You were overheard. Oh. You were planning together to bring about your stepmother's death. Oh, we were mad that evening. Quite mad. It hadn't been so bad in America, but travelling abroad brought it all home to us. Brought what home to you? Our being so different from everyone else. And then there was Ginny. Ginny? Our sister, Ginevra. She was behaving so strangely, and Mother was making her worse. We were frightened that she was going mad. We had to find some way to save her, and it seemed only right. To murder your stepmother? But we didn't do it. Ray and I had nothing to do with it. Will you swear to that, mademoiselle? As you hope for salvation after death? As I hope for a salvation after death, I never harmed her. Very well, mademoiselle. And now will you ask your brother Raymond to come here? Oh, for God's sake, I was just letting off steam. That's all it was. Mm-hmm. It is possible, I suppose. Just consider the facts. I was speaking to my mother a little before six o'clock, and she was certainly alive and well then. Do you know that Miss King is of the opinion that when she examined the body at 6.30, Mrs. Boynton had been dead for at least an hour? Colonel Carberry did mention that, but obviously there was some mistake, some, some factor she failed to take into account. You think so? Then let me tell you this. Someone took a poisonous drug from Dr. Gerard's medicine case. Poison? Is that what you suspect? Your plan was different, hmm? Oh, yes. This changes everything. I can't think clearly. What was your plan? Our plan? I don't think I'll say any more. Why did you start all this? If it hadn't been for you... You I... think I should have kept silent? You had a high fever. The syringe was probably there all the time, and you may have made a mistake about the digitoxin. You need not worry. I am sure your friends, the Boyntons, will get away with it. Get away with it? They've got away with nothing. She's still there. Even from her grave, she's still destroying their lives. Ah, here comes Monsieur Poirot, oh. in search of one of us, I imagine. Is he as much of a fool as he looks? He is not a fool at all. Mm, I was afraid of that. Oh, oh what a country. Oh, my poor shoes. <laughs> You'd better borrow Lady Westholm's shoe-cleaning apparatus and her checked duster. She travels with a kind of patent housemaid's equipment. It will not remove the scratches, mademoiselle. But why on earth wear shoes like that in a place like this? I like to appear soigné. <laughs> but I have come to consult you both about the psychology of the late Mrs. Boynton. Now, why, having brought her family up in such complete servitude, did she arrange this trip abroad where her authority over them might be called into question. Ah, but that's just it. She was bored. 
Her recreation was the domination and tormenting of human creatures, like an animal trainer. But she had tamed all her tigers. Abroad, they might have a chance to rebel. There would be opportunities for inflicting fresh pain. She wanted a new thrill. Or she might perhaps find a new tiger. She chose to live dangerously, and she paid the price. But, ah, is not this her youngest daughter making her way towards us? Ah, look how she moves, like Ophelia or some nymph straying from another world. Why are you looking at me like that? Monsieur Poirot, this is Ginevra Boynt. Ah, it is a piece of good fortune meeting you here, mademoiselle. Oh. I wanted to talk to you. Did you? Will you uh, walk with me a little way? Oh, of course, Monsieur Poirot. If you will excuse us. I did, sir. You are a detective, are you not? The best detective in the world. And you have come here to protect me? Oh, are you then in danger, mademoiselle? Oh, yes. I told Dr. Jared about it in Jerusalem, and he followed me to that terrible place among the red rocks. He wanted to kill me there. Oh, but they did not do so. I have Dr. Jared to thank for that. He is kind and good. He is in love with me. Yes? Oh, yes. He says my name in his sleep. I saw him lying there, turning and tossing and saying my name. I thought perhaps he had sent for you. I have a terrible lot of enemies. Mm. They are all around me. Sometimes they are disguised. Was your mother's death a great shock to you, mademoiselle? She wasn't my mother. My enemies paid her to pretend that she was, to see that I didn't escape. Where were you on the afternoon of her death? I was in my tent. It was hot in there, but I didn't dare come out. They might have got me. Oh. One of them looked into my tent. He was disguised, but I knew him. I pretended to be asleep. The sheikh had sent him. Oh, no. The sheikh wanted to kidnap me, of course. Mm. They're very pretty, these histoires you recount to yourself. They're true, all true. Mm. They are certainly very ingenious. But someone really did come for me in my tent. I saw him clearly. I did. You do know, Lennox, that I'm not going to leave you. Not now. Oh, I have been hoping against hope that that was so. At the time, it seemed the only thing I could do. There was no other way to get you to understand how desperate I was. I hoped you would come after me and try to stop me. Poor Jefferson. I have treated him very badly. When you told me that afternoon, at the place of sacrifice... It was like being hit a very heavy blow on the head. I realized then that there was only one thing I could do if I wasn't going to lose you. When we got back to no. the camp... No, don't tell me. No, listen. I went up to her and said that I had to choose between her and you, and that I chose you. You told her that? Yes. And is that what you're going to say to Monsieur Poirot? He frightens me, that grotesque little man. Be careful, Lennox. Be very careful. So you know who did it? In a short while I shall have the honor to present to you what you asked me for. The truth. Do you think we can get a conviction? Ah, that, my friend, I did not promise you. True enough. And maybe I'm not altogether unhappy about that. Shall I get them all up here? No. I think it would be better to use an empty room in the hotel. There is one on the floor where my room is. 
We will invite La Famille Bonton and the three outsiders who have a definite stake in the affair. Dr. Gerard, Sarah King, and Jefferson Cope, who may all be described as interested parties. And what about Lady Westholm and Miss Pierce? No, no, we shall not need them. But it would be better if they were to remain in their rooms in case we require their evidence. Should I put my uniform on, do you think? No, Colonel. It is best if the proceedings are kept as informal as possible. They are all quite sufficiently apprehensive already. You will all of you by now have made the acquaintance of Monsieur Hercule Poirot. It was my great good fortune that he happened to be staying in a man as my guest when Dr. Gerard came to me to express his doubts over the death of Mrs. Boynton in Petra. I gave him full authority to make what investigation he thought necessary. He is now going to give us his report. I promised Colonel Carbury that I would arrive at the truth of what had happened simply by questioning the people concerned. To investigate a crime, it is only necessary to let the guilty party or parties talk. Always they will tell you what you want to know. And in this case, although you have all lied to me, you have also unwittingly told me the truth. First, I examined the possibility of Mrs. Boynton having died a natural death, and I decided against it. The missing drug the hypodermic syringe, and above all the attitude of the dead woman's family finally convinced me that the supposition could not be maintained. Not only was Mrs. Boynton killed in cold blood, but every member of her family was aware of the fact. Had the murder, I asked myself, been committed by all the Boyntons, acting on a concerted plan? There was overwhelming motive. They all stood to gain by her death, both in the financial sense and in the sense of being freed from an almost insupportable tyranny. Well, that is certainly true. But this theory really did not hold water. The stories of the family did not dovetail together, and no series of workable alibis had been arranged. But there was the possibility that one or two members of the family had acted in collusion, and that the others were accomplices after the fact. I next considered which particular member or members of the family were indicated. I suppose you're referring to the conversation you think you overheard in Jerusalem. No, 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 I did not think I overheard it, Mr. Boynton. That was never in doubt. But let us consider the facts. On the day of the murder, you, Mr. Boynton, left the camp with the others after lunch. Mrs. Boynton was then alive and well. At the place of sacrifice, you had a tete-a-tete -tete with Miss King and then left. You returned to the camp at ten minutes to six, exchanged a few words with your mother, and went down to the Marquis. Yes, that is correct. But when Miss King examined the body, she formed the opinion that death had occurred at least an hour before six o'clock. Setting aside the possibility that Miss King might have been mistaken... I don't make mistakes, and if I had, I would have admitted it. Then there are only two possibilities. Either you or Mr. Boynton is lying. Why should I lie to you? Let us assume that it is Mr. Boynton who is lying. He returns to the camp, goes up to his mother, and finds that she is dead. 
What does he do? Does he call for help? Or tell the family what has happened? No. No, he simply goes down to the Marquis and says nothing. Exactly. Doesn't that prove that Mother was still alive? But if Miss King was correct, and Mrs. Boynton had already been dead for some time, is there anything that could explain his conduct? The words you heard in Jerusalem, to whom were they spoken? Precisely, Colonel. They were spoken to Raymond's sister, Carol, and he suspected that she might have committed the murder. It's a lie. Let us consider the possibility of Carol Boynton being the murderess. She returns to the camp at ten minutes to five. According to her own story, she went up and spoke to her mother. No one saw her. The case against her is a perfectly possible one. Mr. Poirot, I did not kill her. Let us suppose that when you went up to your stepmother, she was already dead. You suspected that your brother might have killed her and chose to say nothing. When I asked Miss Boynton to swear that Mrs. Boynton did not die as a result of any action of hers, she did so immediately. But why shouldn't I? You swore for yourself only, mademoiselle, and not for your brother. But let us suppose that Carol is speaking the truth, and that her mother was in fact alive. Are we then to believe that Raymond killed his mother when he went up to speak to her? Or it might have been managed. The servants were too occupied with preparing dinner to notice. But then it follows that Miss King must have been lying. I did not lie. But if Raymond found his mother alive, then there is only one other possibility, that it was you, Miss King, who administered the fatal injection. You believed, did you not, that Mrs. Boynton was fundamentally evil? Did you perhaps see yourself as her justified executioner? I might have said that sometimes it was expedient that one person should die to save others. But I swear to you that I never harmed that disgusting old woman. And yet one of you must be lying. You win, Monsieur Poirot. I'm the liar. Mother was dead when I went up to her. I'd been going to have it out with her, to tell her that... From then on, I was going to live my own life. And there she was, dead. I thought exactly what you said, th that it might have been Carol. You see, there was that mark on her wrist. What was your plan? You had one, I know. And I think it was connected with a hypodermic syringe. If you want me to believe you, you must tell me the rest. I read about it in an old detective story. You stick an empty syringe into somebody and it does the trick. And where did you get the syringe? As a matter of fact, I pinched Nadine's. The syringe that is in your luggage in Jerusalem, madame? I wasn't sure what would become of it. Mm -hmm. You are so quick-witted, madame. More than that, you are intelligent. And what am I meant to deduce from that? All along, you have envisaged the situation coolly and objectively. I think that some time ago, you saw that the only chance of happiness for you and your husband was for him to get away from home. But Lennox Boynton no longer had the will for freedom. He was content to sink into helpless apathy. 
you tried to rouse him by threatening to leave him, but that had no effect. As a last desperate throw, you told him that you were going to go away with Mr. Cope, and when that too failed, there remained only one other course of action open to you. And what was that, Monsieur Poirot? If Mrs. Boynton were to die... And you are suggesting that I brought that about? But it's just not possible. After I told her that I was going to leave, I went straight to the Marquis. I remained there until she was found dead. Hmm. Who was it who went to tell Mrs. Boynton that dinner was ready? It's in my notes. Uh, at half past six, a servant was sent to inform Mrs. Boynton. And why a servant? Were you not all most assiduous in your attendance on the old lady? I saw it for myself in the hotel in Jerusalem. So why did one of you not go to help her out of her chair and bring her in, hmm? Because you knew quite well that she was dead. That is quite ridiculous. Just because no, I'm No, it is not ridiculous, madame, and you know it very well. You had every opportunity during your time up there with Mrs. Boynton to kill her. And you had the benefit of your training as a nurse to guide you. That's just not true. Nadine couldn't have killed her. My mother was already dead. Ah. So, after all, it was you, Mr. Boynton. Yes, that's right. It was me. Why did you kill her? Because Nadine was going off with Cope. So when did you take the syringe from Dr. Gerard's tent? In the morning, while he was out. But you did not learn that your wife was leaving you until the afternoon. Oh, stop badgering me with questions. What does it matter? It matters a great deal. I advise you to tell me the truth. The truth? All right. But you're not going to believe me. Perhaps. But tell me. That afternoon, I was absolutely all to pieces. I never dreamed that Nadine would leave me for somebody else. I hardly knew what I was doing. But I realized I had only myself to blame. I ought to have defied my stepmother and cleared out years ago. And it came to me that it might not be too late. Even now. There she was, the old devil. Sitting there like some obscene idol against the red cliffs. I went right up to have it out with her, to tell her just what I thought and that I was clearing out. I had a wild idea that I might get away at once, that evening, clear out and try to get Nadine to come with me. Please go on, Monsieur Boynton. But when I got to Mother, she was dead. Just sitting there, dead. I felt as if I had turned to stone. I picked up her wristwatch. It was lying in her lap and put it back on her wrist. Her horrible dead wrist. But why didn't you tell me? I don't know. I just don't know. It was a perfectly natural reaction. You passed through a period of mental paralysis. Oh, yes, it is quite possible. But, of course, it had the effect of making Nadine Boynton believe that she had forced her husband into committing murder. Is that not so, madame? Yes, it is so. So where do we go from here, Monsieur Poirot? There is one other possibility. One person was in the camp all that afternoon and had every opportunity to kill Mrs. Boynton. 
and did not Mademoiselle Ginevra say that she had heard Dr. Gerard speak her name in his delirium? That could only have been when she went into his tent to replace the syringe that she had taken that morning. You think I did it? It isn't true! You want to lock me away in prison? Dr. Gerard, please help me. You must help me. Oh, Monsieur Poirot, what you're suggesting is nonsense. It just isn't possible. She might have committed the crime in some dramatic, flamboyant fashion, but not in cold blood. This was a carefully planned crime, a reasoned crime. Hmm. I am entirely of your opinion, Doctor. I'm sorry, Poirot, but why are you beating about the bush like this? If you know who did it, why can't you come straight out with it? Because that is not the method of Hercule Poirot. From the beginning, there was one factor that argued the innocence of the Boynton family, the hypodermic syringe. I think I see what you're getting at. If one of us intended to kill her, we didn't need to use a syringe. We could have simply put the poison in her medicine bottle. Exactly, madame. But I had to test that fact against the other facts of the case. What I've been seeking to prove is not the guilt of the Boynton family, but their innocence. So what did happen? Oh, it's going hot and stuffy in here. Um, perhaps before we reach the end, we should let in a little air upon the mystery. Um, would you be so good as to open the window, Mr. Cope? Yes, of course. <sighs> Thank you. <clears throat> And now, it is time to examine the psychological side of the case, and in particular, the psychology of the victim. I have noted down two points which I would like to put to you. Mrs. Boynton took definite pleasure in preventing her family from enjoying the company of other people. Mrs. Boynton, on the afternoon of her murder, encouraged her family to go away and leave her. These two facts, they contradict one another, do they not? You don't think she was simply worn out after the journey from Jerusalem? If she was, she didn't give any sign of it. In fact, she seemed almost, well, excited. Ah, that accords very well with what I am about to tell you. You came very close to the truth, Miss King, when in Jerusalem you told the old lady that she was pathetic. She had an intense craving for power. And yet what was she, after all, but the petty tyrant of one isolated family? I told her I thought she was childish and silly. But it was almost as if she hadn't heard me. She just looked through me. And what were her words to you, mademoiselle? She said, I've never forgotten anything. Not an action, not a name, not a face. Now, mes amis, do you see the significance of that? Does it escape you that those words were not a reasonable answer to what Miss King had been saying? You're quite right, of course. It just doesn't make sense. Ha-ha, <laughs> but it does, my friend. Because those words were not spoken to Miss King at all. They were spoken to someone standing behind her. What? But who could it possibly have been? She didn't know anyone there. At that moment, when Miss King had revealed to her the truth of what she had become, she recognizes someone, a face from the past, a victim delivered into her hands. And it was on account of this person that she wanted to get rid of her family in Petra. Exactly, because she had uh, 
How do you say it? Other fish to fry. Now, let us consider the events of that afternoon. The Boynton family go off, leaving their mother sitting alone in her cave, awaiting her victim. We have two witnesses. Miss Pierce, who is unobservant and highly suggestible, and Lady Westholm, who is always perfectly clear as to her facts. They were sitting in separate tents on either side of the Marquis. They could not see each other, but they could both see Mrs. Boynton. Both ladies agree on one fact. The Arab servant, do you mean? Yes. They said that they saw one of the servants approach Mrs. Boynton, annoy her in some fashion, and steal hastily away. Miss Pierce also stated that the servant had earlier gone into the tent occupied by Ginevra Boynton. I told you that an Arab came in to look at me. And since Dr. Gerard's tent was next to yours, he could easily have entered there also. Do you mean to say that one of those Bedouin fellows murdered the old lady by sticking her with a hypodermic? That's absurd. Now wait, Colonel. I've not finished. Both ladies agreed that they could not see the man's face clearly enough to identify him. He was a good two hundred yards away. And yet, Lady Westholm gave a very clear description of what he was wearing, even down to the state of his breeches and the fact that his puttees were wound untidily. She must have had magnificent eyesight. It was an error, and it suggested a curious idea to me. Could it be because the breeches were not worn and the puttees never existed? Could the servant have been... Lady Westholm herself? Good Lord! Are you suggesting... I am suggesting that having first ascertained that Miss Pierce was awake and sitting at the entrance to her tent, Lady Westholm put on her riding breeches, boots and khaki-coloured coat and made herself an Arab headdress out of a cloth she used for cleaning her shoes and then, thus disguised, went into Dr. Sherhat's tent, having first entered in error the tent of Mademoiselle Ginevra, took the doctor's syringe and the drag from his medicine chest and walked boldly up to her victim. Who was sitting there waiting for Lady Westholm. Did she recognize her in that disguise? She did not have a chance. In an instant, Lady Westholm stuck the syringe into her wrist. Mrs. Boynton cried out. Miss Pierce imagined that she was simply annoyed at the servant and sank back. The so-called Arab retreated, showing every sign of having been rebuked. Five minutes later... She talked over the scene with Miss Pierce, as if she had witnessed it from her tent. But according to your notes, the two ladies actually spoke to Mrs. Boynton when they were setting out on their walk a little later. <laughs> you are forgetting that Miss Pierce was almost abnormally suggestible. As they passed beneath Mrs. Boynton's cave, Lady Westholm called up to the old lady and received no answer. She remarked, very rude, just to snort at us like that, and Miss Pierce accepted the fact. But why? Why should Lady Westholm want to kill Mrs. Boynton? Did you not tell me, Miss King, that Lady Westholm was quite near to you when Mrs. Boynton spoke those strange words? I never forget. Remember that. I've never forgotten anything. Not an action, not a name, not a face. 
And so, if you remember that Mrs. Boynton had once been a wardress in a prison in America, you get a very shrewd idea of the truth. Lady Westholm met her husband on a voyage back from America. She called herself Mrs. Van Sittert. But I believe that her real name was Mary Huntingdon, and she had served a sentence for fraud and embezzlement. <laughs> you see the terrible dilemma she was in? Her political career, her ambitions, her social position, all at stake. And remember that Mrs. Boynton was no ordinary blackmailer. <laughs> she wanted the pleasure of torturing her victims for a while, and then she would have enjoyed revealing the truth in the most spectacular and public way possible. When Lady Westrom discovered that Mrs. Boynton had pursued her to Petra, she knew that there was only one solution left to her. She agreed to meet Mrs. Boynton on that fateful afternoon. And the rest you know. What was that? It sounded like a pistol shot. From the next room. Who's in there, Poirot? Do you know? I think that you will find that it is the room of Lady Westholm. We regret to announce the death of Lady Westholm, MP, as the result of a tragic accident. Lady Westholm, who spent much of her leisure time traveling in remote foreign countries, always carried a small revolver with her. She was cleaning it when it went off accidentally and killed her. Death was instantaneous. Was that why you insisted on having the window open, Poirot? So that she could hear what was going on in the next room? It would not have been a pretty experience standing trial for the murder of that horrible woman. And perhaps it is fitting that the story should close as it began. And how is that, Monsieur Poirot? with words drifting from an hotel window over the murmur of a quiet street. In Agatha Christie's Appointment with Death, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat. Lady Westholm, Jill Balkan, Mrs. Boynton, Miriam Carlin, Sarah King, Connie Walker. Dr. Gerard, Sean Baker, Jefferson Cope, Jonathan Keeble, Colonel Carberry, John Woodnut, Miss Pierce, Jenny Stoller. Nadine, Helen Ayres, Lennox, Roger May, Carol, Jasmine Hyde, Raymond, Kenny Blythe, Ginevra, Claire Corbett. Other parts were played by members of the cast. Appointment with Death was dramatized by Michael Bakewell. It was directed by Enid Williams for BBC Radio 4 and is published in the UK by BBC Worldwide.